Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and go to John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through, 20, 12 through 16. John chapter number 19, verses 12 through 16. And this morning we want to take and consider for our subject, Behold Your King. Behold Your King. Reading together there in John 19, verse 12, the Bible says these words, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Mark that expression there in verse 14. Behold your king. We're taking that for our subject today as we continue this account, this narrative of the events that led up to our Lord's crucifixion. This begins a section that goes down through verse number 37, where we're given the account of our Lord's death upon the cross. Of course, the death upon the cross was uh, not a surprise to us because we've been reading about this in our uh, study of the book of John. But before we really get into this expression of behold your king, I think it's imperative that we understand that when you mention the cross or you mention the death of Christ, there are really five viewpoints uh, we need to consider the cross from. And you might say, how can there be that many viewpoints or standpoints? Well, from the standpoint of God the Father with regard to the death of Christ, so from God the Father's point of view, if I can use that expression, the cross was a propitiation. The cross was a propitiation. Now, I want you to hold your place there in John 19. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter number 3, and I want to read verses 25 through 26. I think it is so important that we understand the, the viewpoints of all the characters involved in what's going to take place on the cross. Romans 3, beginning there in verse 25. Now, this is referenced back to Jesus in verse 24 being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." So from the standpoint of God the Father, or from His viewpoint, the cross in which His Son was crucified upon would be a propitiation. 
full satisfaction was made with regard to the holiness and the justice of God the Father. So as God the Father views the cross, He sees the cross as a full satisfaction to what He required, the payment for sin. Now, from the standpoint of Jesus Himself, it was a sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Ephesus, reminds them of what Jesus Christ had done, and it was a sacrifice. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul wrote these words, "...be ye therefore followers of God as dear children." And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God. All right? That's from the viewpoint of the Savior. Paul also mentioned that Christ was an offering. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. The Bible says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we see that it was, from the Savior's standpoint, a sacrifice, an offering, and we can't miss this third viewpoint from the Savior, an act of obedience. An act of obedience. We're told about that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, verse number 8. This, of course, Paul writing with regard to Jesus Christ making himself of no reputation, taking on, upon him the form of a servant made in the likeness of men, says this in verse 8 of Philippians 2. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, that's Christ, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in the cross, Jesus himself saw himself as a sacrifice, an offering, and as an act of obedience. Now, from the viewpoint of the believer, if you're in Christ today, you are a believer. From the standpoint of a believer, it was Christ as our substitute, the just one suffering for the unjust. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, Verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So you have the viewpoint or the standpoint of God the Father. It was a propitiation where full satisfaction was made regarding His holiness and His justice. From the standpoint of the Savior, it was a sacrifice, an offering, and an act of obedience. From the standpoint of the believer, it's a substitution. He took my place, the just for the unjust. What about the viewpoint of Satan? From the viewpoint of Satan himself, the cross initially was a source of triumph to him. However, it was actually a triumph against Satan. Now, we understand that Genesis 3.15 tells us that Christ would be bruised, but that ultimately on the cross, Satan, death, and hell, and the grave would be defeated. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, tells us regarding this defeat of Satan himself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14. All of these texts are so vitally important to what we're going to talk about this morning. Hebrews 2, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So from the viewpoint of Satan himself, it was a picture of his own defeat. Now you say, what other standpoint could there be? We have the viewpoint or the standpoint of the Father. We have the viewpoint of the Savior. We have the viewpoint of the believer. We have the viewpoint of Satan. What about the viewpoint of the world? What about, how did the world view this? The world views the cross as a brutal murder. Acts 3, verses 13 through 16. Again, this is all just introductory to get us to our text to behold your king. Acts 3, verses 13 through 16. This is Peter speaking here. He's giving a bit of a Old Testament history lesson, but also leads us into the reality of what happened with Christ. Acts 3, verse 13, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, I believe that what we're reading today in the 19th chapter of John in verses 12 through 16, that we have to view the cross and what's getting ready to take place through the viewpoint of the world. The reason we have to look at that, this aspect of the death of Christ, this passage deals with how the world is looking and how the world would treat this passage. 
from the human perspective, all right, the ones from the human viewpoint, the human perspective were the ones who took the initiative in slaying Jesus Christ. Those who took the initiative were the Jews themselves. However, judicially responsible is Pilate. So you have the Jews who take the initiative to have Christ crucified, put to death for the crime which they accused him of, which was blasphemy, which was not true, but that's the crime. But judicially, Pilate was responsible. Now, we've pointed out two things over the last few weeks. Number one, that God had ordained clearly through Scripture that Pilate would pass sentence upon his son and that innocence had to be declared or at least spoken. We've seen that. But secondly, we've also learned that nevertheless, Pilate was morally and judicially guilty in sentencing him to death. Now, we're not going to cover all that we've already talked about regarding that, but those things are important to understand. You have the Jews who are calling out for the crucifixion of Christ. You have Pilate who is attempting to release him, but ultimately and judicially, he allows Jesus to be turned over to those, the world, the Jews, screaming for his crucifixion. So there's really two main points, and these are just headings to help us see the text this morning. The first heading is simply this, Christ condemned to death, verses 12 through 14. And then verses 15 through 16, Christ delivered to the Jews. So we see a condemning and we see a delivery. Christ is condemned to die, and then he is ultimately delivered to the Jews. Now let's look, look back at our text in John 19, verse 12, and tells us this, And from henceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, now this is key, thou art not Caesar's friend. Now notice the words here. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Now, what we've learned last week as a result of the discussion that Pilate had with our Lord in verses 8 through 11, Pilate again sought to release Jesus. He knew judicially that Jesus was innocent of all the Jews' charges and that Jesus himself was no threat to Caesar. He was no threat to the kingdom. But when he took Jesus back out, he sought to release him a second time. The Jews began to cry out again, crucify him. But I want you to understand, there's something that they said here in this text that really is telling because this statement ultimately leads Pilate to give the order to condemn him. Verse 12, look closely. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If thou, you Pilate, allow this man to go... You are not Caesar's friend. Now this statement moves Pilate to condemn Jesus. It's this statement, finally. Now what is he being told here? The Jews speak this knowing that this is going to influence Pilate in a way that no other statement could. If you let this man go, Pilate, you are an enemy of Caesar. For whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That's what did it. 
Pilate understood exactly what the Jews were saying. They were saying that, Pilate, if you don't do this, we are going to lodge a complaint before the Caesar, who at that time would have been Tiberius. He was the Caesar at that time. He would have been in grave danger of not just losing his kingdom, but ultimately would have lost his own life. He knew, Pilate knew these Jews. Now think about the irony here and the hypocrisy. Pilate knows these Jews have no love for Caesar. The Jews did not love the Roman government. They didn't like being over Roman rule. They're using the very thing they hate the most to convince Pilate to not let Jesus go. They hated Caesar and they hated the government. And yet they're using that as a way to get what they wanted accomplished. They knew that Pilate was not going to allow this to happen. Look what it says, verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, what saying? What, he just, what they just said. He, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Notice where he is seated. He, seat, he is seated in the place or the seat of judgment. When Pilate hears that they intend to accuse him of treason before Caesar, he brings the Lord Jesus back out to pass sentence upon him. How do we know that that's what he's doing? Because he's seated in the judgment seat. The judgment seat is a place where the, where the judicial process takes place. He goes there intentionally because what he's doing now, because of that statement that the Jews threatened, he now goes right to the judgment seat, brings Jesus back in there, and he's going to deliver the condemnation of death. Now, friends, we look at this and we say, this is an atrocity. This is unfair from the human perspective. This is unfair. But this is the moment in biblical history upon where all of our redemption lies. This is it right here. This is where Jesus is going to be condemned to go to the very cross. Remember, from the viewpoint of the believer, this was the act of substitution. The just would die for the unjust. From a position of God the Father, this was the satisfaction that was required to be made. From the standpoint of Christ Himself, it was a sacrifice that offered an act of obedience from the devil's standpoint, it was the place where his defeat is going to be completely announced. Christ is going to cry out the words, it is finished. But the world's going to look at it and say, this is a brutal murder. But this is the very point in the history of redemption. This is what all the prophets had been prophesying about. This is what all of the foreshadowing, all the types, all the pictures, the sacrifices, and the, the applying of blood upon the mercy seat. This is the very uh, climax of all of this. Now, the Bible says that Pilate sits down in the place of judgment. Verse 14 gives us some background as to the time. It was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Pilate has made the decision to deliver Jesus Christ to be crucified. He sits down in the official chair of judgment. 
The sixth hour, the Jewish day, was divided into four different parts. The third hour would have been 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. The sixth hour was 9 a.m. to 12 noon. The ninth hour would be 12 noon to 3 p.m. And the twelfth hour would be 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. The Bible says it was the sixth hour or around 9 a.m. that Pilate cries out these words, Behold your king. Now let's be careful that we don't begin to make assumptions about what Pilate's thinking when he says, Behold your king. This narrative has been very complicated. We see Pilate knowing he's innocent. We see his wife warning him about being careful about dealing with this man. We've seen Pilate try to have Barabbas released and they see the people crying out for Jesus. You do not really know what he thinks or what his intent is when he says, Behold your king. He may be doing it, and again, this is pure speculation, he may be doing it in a mocking way. He may be mocking the Jews by saying, listen, I know your game. I know that you don't really care about the government. I know what your goal is. You just want this man dead. Maybe he's mocking them. Or maybe he's ridiculing Jesus himself. Here's this weak what appears to be weak, defenseless man who's already endured the, hor- the horrible torture of scourging, and he's about to be slain. However, there's one other viewpoint. Or was he also speaking prophetically like Caiaphas had spoken in John chapter number 11? Let's go back there for a moment. John 11, verse 49. This goes all the way back to a man by the name of Caiaphas, and this for our church has been quite a while ago. But this deals with, in John 11, in verses 45 through 57, deal with the plan to kill Jesus. This was not a new plan. But I want us to zero in specifically on verses 49 through 52. It says, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Something interesting happened at that moment. Verse 54, that same chapter, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Jesus stopped appearing publicly at that moment. So it's possible It's possible that Pilate had more in mind than just mocking the Jews or ridiculing them because we know later in this text, and we're going to deal with this next week, in John chapter 19, verses 19 through 22, Pilate's going to write a title on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We're going to read about that next week. So this phrase, behold your king, ties in to what Pilate has written above the cross of our Lord. And we'll deal with that next week. But I want us to see, first of all, this Christ being condemned to death. 
verses 15 through 16, we see Christ being delivered to the Jews. But they cried out, verse 15, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now again, remember these Jews. Remember these chief priests. They were not submissive. They did not like the authority of the Roman government. But yet here we see them. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar is our only king. In answer to Pilate's question, shall I crucify your king? That was their response. They are denying that Christ is their king. They say we have no king but Caesar. In reality, they used to say we have no king but God. In reality, they resented Caesar's rule. They hated Caesar's rule. And yet, these Jews are the ones saying, we will not have Jesus to be king over us. There's not a person in the world, there's no nation, no people in the world that were more zealous for liberty than the Jews, nor were they, was there any more impatient They hated Christ. They hated the gospel. They hated redemption. They were willing to say, we would rather bow down to Tiberius than have Christ rule over us. When Pilate announces them as their king, that was a means of an insult to those Jews. We don't have him as our king. Our only king is Caesar. Again, a form of hypocrisy. In Luke 19, verse 14. Luke 19, you don't have to turn there, but here's what it says. Luke 19, 14. But his citizens, with regard to Christ, hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Friends, this is the entire issue I want you to listen carefully. This is the entire issue in salvation. The entire issue. Who is your Lord and King? It is impossible to be in Christ and refuse to make Him the Lord of your life or to be your King. When a man or a woman rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are in fact saying the exact same thing. We will not have this man Jesus to rule over us. That's why it's so dangerous to preach a gospel that just simply says, ask Jesus to come into your heart, but mentions nothing about telling Him and and acknowledging Him as the Lord of your life. They go together. That is the... the, the entirety of the issue of what we deal with when we deal with salvation. People want the benefits, but they don't want to submit to the Lord as their king. Yet in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, very often quoted, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Christ cannot and will not be your Savior if He is not the Lord of your life. These Jews were rejecting their prophesied and promised Messiah and said, I would rather, we would rather bow to the God of this world and allow Jesus to be crucified. Now again, from the believer's viewpoint, this is what the believer sees. We see Christ as our substitute. We see Christ as the just one dying for the unjust, which is you and I. We see it as a beautiful thing because we know that the cross is in where our redemption is found. In the blood of Christ being shed. We find the beauty in that. But to the outside world, they look at this and they say, this is an unfair, brutal murder. An innocent man is going to the cross. He's dying. And yet this is the point in redemption where you see the Jews say, we will not have this man to be king over us. And they allow Jesus to be led away. We have no king but Caesar. I'll tell you that this morning, this afternoon, this is... This is a very simple, yet profound and deep message that is being delivered by what Pilate is saying, behold your king. Notice verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them. The delivery of Jesus unto the Jews was made by Pilate. Pilate condemned Jesus to die, an innocent man, just as what needed to take place according to prophecy. He must be declared innocent. He was, but yet he still condemned for a crime he did not do. The sinless, suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucify your king. It looks to me, he says, more in sarcastic tone than anything. But again, we don't read much into what Pilate says today. They took Jesus and led him away. Now we understand that the away is being led to the cross. We know this from our Bible. We know this from being in church many, many years. We've heard the stories. We've heard the accounts. But this is such a pivotal point in human history. It's a point that the normal human mind looks at and says, how can this be allowed to happen? And from the perspective of the believer and from God the Father and from Satan, he sees it in the reality of what the cross really is. Pilate, in some sense, in some tone, says, you call him king and yet you want me to take him away and crucify him. This proves the truth of the Word of God. It proves that man left to himself, man will have, will never have Christ to rule over him. Here, the promised Messiah comes. He has come at last to his people, and yet he is rejected, he is refused. And we hear the words and the shouts, we have no king but Caesar. A Caesar that they hated. A Roman rule that had forced itself upon them, and yet they're willing 
in their own hypocrisy and their own spiritual zealousness to say, we would much rather have an ungodly king rule over us than ever have that man, Jesus Christ, rule over us. It's no different today. Man in his depravity cannot stand to give up the rule of his own heart. Man can't even stand to give up rule in his own life. Man in his sinful depravity hates authority of all kinds at every level. We despise authority. We don't like to be told anybody to be king over us. Yet this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Without whom we are hopeless and miserable. Without Christ, there is no hope in this world. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. And today, our plea with you, and according to the Scripture, is there's a command for you to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call on Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. It's not an invitation, it's a command. Repent and believe. To acknowledge that I am indeed a sinner. I'm refusing the gods of this world and I'm calling on the Lord Jesus Christ to be the King of my life. To save me from my sin. From the human viewpoint, how do you view this? From the viewpoint of the Jew that says we'll not have him to reign over us or from the human point that says in my depravity and my need, I say I need this Savior. And if the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with your heart today about that, respond to him and say, I repent of my sin and I call on Christ alone to save me from my sin. And I do, in fact, make him the Lord of my life. Because apart from that, there is no salvation. You cannot have a Christ die for you who you will not willingly make Him the Lord of your life. You can't be a child of God who just prays a prayer and then goes about your life in the way you always do and say, I don't need a, I don't need a king. No, Jesus Christ becomes the king of your life. Today, very simple, very directed Behold your king. For the believer, it means one thing. For the unbeliever, it means something totally different. We'll learn a little bit more about what it means to Pilate as we go and we find the accounts of this as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross and we read about John's account of what the cross was and how it appeared to be. I want us to conclude our thinking this morning, reading from the Valley of Vision as we uh, conclude our time together this morning. This is found in chapter number 3, and in some editions will be found on page 126, and it's titled The Dark Guest. And I think this is very fitting and appropriate as we close uh, this time together today. And we'll finish with a closing hymn in just a moment. It says, O Lord, bend my hands and cut them off, for I have often struck Thee with a wayward will. When these fingers should embrace thee by faith, I am not yet weaned from all created glory, honor, wisdom, and esteem of others. For I have a secret motive to eye my name in all I do. Let me not only speak the word sin, but see the thing itself. Give me to view a discovered sinfulness, 
to know that though my sins are crucified, they are never wholly mortified. Hatred, malice, ill will, vain glory that hungers for and hunts after man's approval and applause, all are crucified, forgiven, but they rise again in my sinful heart. O oh, my crucified but never wholly mortified sinfulness, O oh, my lifelong damage and daily shame, O oh, my indwelling and besetting sins, O oh, the tormenting slavery of a sinful heart, Destroy, O God, the dark guest within whose hidden presence makes my life a hell. Yet Thou hast not left me here without grace. The cross still stands and meets my needs in the deepest straits of the soul. I thank Thee that my remembrance of it is like David's sight of Goliath's sword which preached forth Thy deliverance. The memory of my great sins, my many temptations, my falls bring afresh into my mind the remembrance of thy great help, of thy support from heaven, of the great grace that saves such a wretch as I am. There is no treasure so wonderful as that continuous experience of thy grace toward me, which alone can subdue the risings of sin within. Give me more of it. We'll conclude our time together by singing the hymn, Here is Love page number 185.